What? 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 I know how we can run everybody out of Rock Creek. How? We'll kill the firstborn male child in every household. Too Jewish. Shalom and welcome to the Two Jewish Radio Show with Rabbi Sam Kohan and Friends, a weekly serving of everything Jewish. We'll have a great hour together today of news, music, comedy, and conversation. Our guest this morning is Jane Nugaboran, six-time pen-winning author of After Camus. We'll also have a visit from our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Please email your comments to us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com or visit us on the web at 2JewishRadio.com. The opinions of the host and guests on 2Jewish are their own and not those of the radio station. 2Jewish is paid for by 2Jewish Radio programs and podcasts, Tucson, Arizona. And now, here's Rabbi Sam Kohan and 2Jewish. Shalom. I suspect many of you watched the Super Bowl broadcast last Sunday. A third of all Americans did. A broadcast included a surprising number of religious ads. There were invitations to join Christianity. Jesus gets us, we were told. And Scientology. Tom Cruise gets us. Uh, No, wait. Please join us, we were told. And then there were the Jewish ads. One was funded by New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft. It argued against hatred and injustice of all kinds on behalf of the foundation to combat anti-Semitism. The ad featured Clarence B. Jones, who helped write Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, and the visuals included Stand Up to Jewish Hate signs. It was short but effective. Sometimes I imagine what I'd write today for my dear friend Martin. I'd remind people that all hate thrives on one thing. Silence. The people who will change the nation are those who speak out, who refuse to be bystanders, who raise their voices against injustice. When we stand up to silence, we stand up to all hate. Kraft's ad was a reminder that speaking out against the vile anti-Jewish hate that is so prevalent today, particularly on college campuses, must be responded to forcefully but intelligently and strategically. Naturally, the ad was attacked by those who think somehow that hating Jews and wanting to destroy Israel in particular should not be criticized. It's odd. This very positive interracial message, well, it should be embraced by everybody. But of course, anti-Semites have no limits to their biases, now do they? And boy, do they hate Israel. It's also notable that the anti-hate ad was not so subtly aimed at the black community in America, which has had many of its members and representative agencies and groups embrace the Palestinian cause and the extremely false narrative that Jews are white while Palestinians are people of color. In fact, In Israel, most Jews would easily qualify as people of color, displaced from Arab lands in Africa and the Middle East, who had their possessions and land and assets confiscated or just stolen when they were expelled and had to flee persecution. Some Jews in Israel, Israelis, are black African Jews who immigrated from Ethiopia and elsewhere. These Jews of color all started over in Israel, building new lives, helping a modern country grow and develop. 
Well, I hope this ad helps start a change in direction for black-Jewish relations in the U.S., which have deteriorated so much. Also on the Super Bowl broadcast, a message perhaps more powerful was the ad run by the Israeli government addressed to all the dads. To all the dads. The funny ones. The silly ones. The strong ones. The adventurous ones. To all the dads held in captivity by Hamas for over 120 days, we vow to bring you home. This evocative ad naturally provoked a huge negative response from the pro-Arab terrorist sympathizers out there. There are many of them, of course, and they, perhaps correctly, highlighted the potential hypocrisy of the Netanyahu government funding this ad while refusing various deals to bring the hostages home, in exchange, of course, for allowing Hamas terrorists to stay in power in Gaza, among other demands the Palestinian terrorist groups making. I'm not sure if these $7 million each ads will make a huge difference in the ongoing propaganda war over the actual Gaza war, But I do know that we, as a Jewish community in America, need to continue to do work in every area to support our people and the only Jewish nation on the planet, the only one that's existed for over 1,800 years. We are not winning the propaganda war internationally or here in America right now, and we need to continue to work to support this just war in every way we can. It was Valentine's Day last week to play us in this morning on Two Jewish. Here's my friend Rabbi Joe Black's classic song, Valentine's Day is not a Jewish holiday. It explains, you know, what happened last week. Valentine's Day is not a Jewish holiday. That's why I didn't buy you flowers. I was thinking just of you. I know you're proud to be a Jew It's a most confusing 24 hours No, I can't be what I ain't And a day named for a saint Doesn't seem to be a kosher celebration Oh, but when Purim comes, we'll gnash on special heart-shaped homentashen And drink Mogan David wine for our libation It's a hallmark holiday, that is all that I can say I don't know why you think it's so essential Besides at 80 bucks a pop a dozen roses ain't so hot What's the point of getting oh so sentimental? No, I didn't buy Godiva's Cause the increase in your dress sizes From eating chocolate makes you weep and makes you wail So open up the bedroom door, don't make me sleep here on the floor I'll buy perfume for you next week when it's on sale That was Rabbi Joe Black singing Valentine's Day is not a Jewish holiday Our guest this morning on Two Jewish is Jay Nugeboren, six-time pen-winning author of many wonderful books. His latest is a terrific new novel called After Camus. Meet the distinguished writer when we come back in just a moment, right here on Two Jewish. 
We are delighted to welcome the two Jewish, our guests this morning. Jay Nugaborn is, I think, one of the best novelists working in America today. His new book is called After Camus, a novel. He's the award-winning author of a number of books, including Imagining Robert, originally from New York. Well, I guess maybe still from New York. Maybe you never quite leave New York, even if you, especially if you live there. His novels and novellas have won a number of literary prizes, and his new book is really quite fascinating. Good morning and welcome to Too Jewish. Uh, thank you, Sam. Good morning. So, um, have you always liked Camus? Uh, well, since about... Uh, the age of 17, when I read The Stranger, I, yeah, I loved it then. I read it in English, and then um, my sophomore year in college, I took a French course in which I read it in French, and I've been um, a Camus devotee ever since. So, just a little biographical information to those who are not huge fans of 20th century existentialism. Camus, fascinating philosopher, novelist, a Jew from North Africa, and he plays an incredibly prominent role in this book, although mostly after he's long dead. How did you conceive of the idea of After Camus? I'm not, I'm not sure how I conceive of any of uh, the notions that inform my novels, but I did. The novel actually began as a short story. The opening chapter was originally a short story in which a young woman uh, is determined to meet Camus because she has a crush on him. She's a dancer and choreographer. She goes to Paris. She meets him and has a brief affair and uh, is intending, they have an arrangement for her to meet again, but he dies uh, before that happens. He was killed in a car crash and the novel, uh, the short story, uh, the woman I kind of fell in love with her and with the way in which he haunts her life. And I said, I've got to do more with it. And so it began to grow into a novel. It did not start out as a novel. You have written uh, broadly in so many different areas uh, quite a lot about Jewish life, both nonfiction and fiction. How has that influenced your development as a writer, do you think? Well, uh, profoundly. I mean, uh, it was part of my lifestyle. I grew up in an observant Emily and uh, went to shul every 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 Shabbos. Uh, we were kosher, uh, but I also fell in love very early on with uh, the five books of Moses, as we called them. Then, uh, actually, I would sneak out of the synagogue when the rabbi gave sermon so I could go downstairs and read stories from the Bible. I, I, I fell in love with stories in the Bible, the stories of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Leah, Rachel, Sarah, Rebecca. I just found the stories fascinating uh, in infinite ways, and I loved reading stories, and I loved, even as a child, making up stories. So the this passion of mine, uh, obsession as, as a child, was fed by the Jewish milieu in which I grew up. No, it's a good answer, and I, I have to say, they're still some of the best stories ever created. They're still utterly fascinating. Oh. Utterly fascinating, and I, what I always thought is, you know, this is not so different from my family. The ways in which the brothers fought against each other, the ways in which the wives, the husbands, in which the men traveled away, you know, from home, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, they seemed larger than life and yet very ordinary in their um, foibles 
and in their heroism. And in their relatability. We will talk much more with Jay Nugaboran. His new book is called After Camus. When we come back in a moment here on Too Jewish. Beit Simcha, the House of Joy, a wonderful Jewish synagogue in northwest Tucson and Catalina Foothills, celebrates a fabulous array of services, classes, and events this winter and spring. Established by passionate, caring congregants and me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, Beit Simcha is a vibrant, vital community that strives every day to serve God with joy. Progressive congregation in northwest Tucson and the foothills, Beit Simcha is open to everyone throughout the metropolitan area, providing weekly Shabbat services, youth and adult education academy courses, social justice opportunities, outreach, and cultural Jewish programming. Join us in person for Shabbat services or come on Facebook Live. Go to our website, BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson.org. We welcome members and guests in our sanctuary. Call 520-276-5675 for more information. Religious schools available for school-aged children or grandchildren are fabulous Hebrew school, bar and bat mitzvah programs, Torah Tykes experience, confirmation and teen programs, all in a fun, relaxed setting with great Jewish learning. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson.org. Beit Simcha services, classes, and events are open to everyone every Friday night. Shabbat evening celebration services are at 6.30 p.m., followed by an Oneg Shabbat. Shabbat morning services are at 10 a.m., followed by a Kiddush, and preceded at 9 a.m. by Torah study. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org for information on how to join and how to join our services, either in person or on Facebook and all of our classes on Zoom. We have an exciting new class coming up called Passion and Prudence. I'm teaching it with Reverend Dominic Moore at Church of the Apostles. It's on the book Song of Songs and the book Ecclesiastes in the Bible. Go to our website, BeitSimchaTucson.org, to find out more. For more information about Beit Simcha, coming to our religious school, Torah Tykes programs, bar and bat mitzvah confirmation, high school programs, rich array of adult education academy courses, and all of our services, go to BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson.org, or call 520-276-5675. That's 520-276-5675. Join me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, and the fastest-growing Jewish congregation in all of Southern Arizona. If you have a question, comment, compliment, or criticism, kvetch or kvel, please email us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com. That's T-O-O Jewish Radio 18 at Gmail, or visit our website, 2JewishRadio.com. You can hear all of our past and present shows through the website, 2JewishRadio.com, streaming us from there, or downloading us from the Apple iTunes Store's very popular Jewish podcast, Top 10 in America, according to Moment Magazine, over 200,000 downloads on Podbean and available on Spotify. Post a rating, review to Jewish, wherever you listen to us, all those comments help. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. 
We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of Southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. We welcome our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Rabbi. So I was just uh, listening to a podcast which happened to connect to something like the 100th anniversary of the completion of all the treaties of Paris that ended World War I, which included all kinds of reorganizations in the Middle East and the creation of a bunch of countries or mandates that later became countries of places that never were countries like Iraq or Lebanon. And I think it's fascinating that agreements that were made between colonial powers 100 years ago or triumphant countries at the end of World War I to break up the Ottoman Empire still have an incredibly important impact on current affairs like right now. Yeah, first of all, a couple of basic facts that surprisingly many people don't seem to know. The Treaty of Versailles was only signed with the Germans. That was the peace treaty ending the war between us and our allies on the one side, and the Germans and their allies on the other. There were, in various suburbs of Paris, in various fancy chateaus, like Neuilly and a lot of them, different peace treaties with different defeated powers, including the Ottoman Empire. And the Turks in World War II joined the Allies against the Germans because, as their foreign minister at the time said, this time when there's a peace conference, we want to be at the the conference table and not on the menu. (laughs) Because the Ottoman Empire was basically dismantled by these peace treaties. However, the key thing that affected the Middle East was not any part of the Treaty of Paris, which was the collective name for all those treaties, nor was it the Balfour Declaration, which just said, you know, His Majesty's government views with favor the creation of a Jewish homeland. Not very important and not very specific. But the Sykes-Picot Agreement, a little-known secret agreement concluded between a junior French diplomat and a junior British diplomat who had never been to the Middle East... <laughs> That is the agreement that created the modern states of the Middle East, like Jordan, Lebanon, Iraq, Saudi Arabia. And not only did it create those states, 
it put people on the thrones. It chose families of allies to put in charge of those countries. And the descendants of those allies are still in charge still of those countries. Still on the thrones. Yeah. Right. So although with, with in Jordan, some places... Saudi, not all of them, but in, in Jordan, places, Saudi Arabia. Right? Shakier than others, right. Yeah. And one could argue that was because of outside intervention. But it's interesting how these well-meaning colonial powers... Let's assume that they were well-meaning. I don't, I don't know. I might put that in quotation marks, but okay. Right. Well, they were obviously also self-interested. So they negotiated because they felt it was theirs to carve up the whole Ottoman piece of the Middle East, which included all the countries we just mentioned, also included Turkey. It did not include Iran, um, but it did include the entire Arabian Peninsula and Egypt to some extent. Anyway, the mistaken belief that the Balfour Declaration somehow played an outsized role, it's just, I mean, I think that's maybe like Anglophobes who perpetrate that myth. The truth is that the French and the British were equally to blame and that we, the U.S., were blameless because these negotiations between Sykes and Picot were secret. And this was a secret treaty, which is why Woodrow Wilson was very insistent that one of his 14 points be no, no secret, secret treaties. Yeah. I remember um, hearing that the, some of the reason the Sykes-Picot agreements weren't totally enforced was because Russia revealed them to the world or something. I mean, there's been an interesting bit of kind of deep digging on. They were incredibly influential. Boy, I, to call the colonial powers doing things in, in the best, I mean, well-meaning, I'm not sure, because they really were trying to control large new swaths of territory, right? Wasn't that what, what one of the goals was for both the British Empire and the French Empire at that point? I think it was more like cultural influence and trade, to be honest, because they were already envisioning the dismantling of, of their the colonial large empires. colonial empires. And that's a movement that like swung into full steam with World War II. But it started... As early as World War One, the the idea of this is the end of empire. I mean, it is interesting that a lot of great multinational empires like the Ottoman Empire and the Habsburg Empire were dismantled by these treaties that are collectively called the Treaty of Paris. But also, in some ways, new empires were created or France and England added to their existing empires. So right. it went in both directions. By the way, uh, one last note is when these mandates were created for the League of Nations, a lot of the countries wanted to have the United States be the mandatory power, not the French or not the British, because they saw them as disinterested. Boy, some of that perception has certainly changed over the years. Tom, thanks so much. We will talk next week. I look forward to it. It's time now for our old Jewish joke of the week. Jewish humor, your Bubby and Zadie new, brought to you by Too Jewish as a public service. A rabbi walks into a bar. He has a long beard. He's wearing tzitzis, a black hat, a black coat, the whole package. He has a large bullfrog on his shoulder, however. The bartender asks, so where'd you get that? And the bullfrog answers, Brooklyn. They're everywhere. That was the old Jewish joke of the week special feature of Two Jewish. Just for you, you should live and be well.
And now a word of Torah. This week we read the portion of Titzavah in the book of Exodus, a richly oriented parsha, which gives the commandment to create a ner tamid, an eternal light for the tabernacle in the wilderness. That tabernacle was the first sanctuary of the people of Israel. Technically speaking, the tabernacle, the Mishkan, was just an elaborate portable tent, but it was also the place where God's presence, in the form of the Shekhinah, the divine indwelling essence of God, resided. Last week in Truma, our ancestors were asked to create this sacred space through the voluntary gifts of their hearts. This week we're told that there must be a continual fire, a ner tamid, a constant light shining on the altar, a sign of God's faithful and permanent presence in our midst. Revealingly, that light is to be created and kindled by us, humans, not God. We must build the altar. We must light the fire. We must continue to feed and nurture it to keep it alive. Well, if you've ever kept a fire burning around the clock, say at a campout or bonfire, or for heat on a cold winter's night in a frigid clime, you know just how much fuel you need to do it. You're always either stoking the fire or bringing in more wood for the fire to burn. If neglected for any length of time, that fire burns out. The Ner Tamid was not just a symbol, but a process requiring regular care and feeding to flourish. Our own spiritual lives are rather like that ancient Ner Tamid. If we wish God's presence to illuminate our lives, to give us warmth and comfort, then we too must feed our own Ner Tamid, must gently and regularly add spiritual fuel to the flame. Religious experiences, prayer, meditation, introspection, blessings, personal and communal rituals, time for breathing and allowing God into our lives, all of these feed the fire. And they must be done with regularity, or our own internal, eternal lights may, in fact, will go out. The Ner Tamid, that ancient light, is found in every synagogue today in the world, no matter how humble the shul or how grand the temple edifice. Today, we simply pay an electric bill to keep it alive, but even that requires a little of our active participation. Still, the symbolic purpose is much greater. The Ner Tamid burns always to remind us God is with us always, but only if we take the time to feed our own spiritual fires regularly. When we returned to Jewish in a moment, our guest, distinguished author Jay Nugaboran, author of the excellent new novel After Camus, tells us how his Jewish background influenced his development as a writer and why he decided to create a tale around the famed Jewish existentialist Albert Camus and how he brought it up to today and, of course, why writing matters so much. Find out all of that when he rejoins us in a moment on Two Jewish. We continue with our Two Jewish update on news of Jews around the world with commentary. In Washington, D.C., the ever-increasingly polarized and polarizing Congress could not agree on an aid package for Israel. Under the influence of likely Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump, House Republicans voted against sending aid to Israel. The Freedom Caucus, closely allied with Trump, insisted on cuts to the funding of the IRS to balance the spending 
or on insisting that the aid be in the form of loans instead of grants to Israel. The Israel aid was originally proposed by President Biden as part of a larger foreign aid package that included continuing assistance to Ukraine for its war against Vladimir Putin's evil Russia and funds to control illegal immigration across the southern U.S. border. Republicans blocked that combined bill, refusing to give President Biden what they viewed as a political win, even though all of these measures are in America's national interest. And now a standalone Israel aid package has been blocked by Republicans loyal to former President Trump. He himself is facing a variety of criminal and civil lawsuits that are beginning to come to a head. Trump is unwilling to allow essential Israel aid to flow during the Gaza war in spite of his and his Republican allies' oft-stated pro-Israel positions. Again, the goal is to prevent the Biden administration from accomplishing anything even if it is in the interests of the United States, which, by the way, they have all sworn oaths to support and serve, and in the interests of Israel, which they all profess to love. The cynicism of all this is breathtakingly immoral and endangers one of our closest and most important allies at a time of grave national danger in Israel. To emphasize that this is not a principled decision, some of the Republican Congress people involved, including Speaker of the House Mike Johnson, are asking that in exchange for approving aid to Israel, in order to fiscally balance that spending, a comparable amount of money be cut from the IRS budget. In other words, to avoid spending too much money on Israel, we should cut funding for the agency that brings in the tax dollars that support the U.S. government. Well, not meaning to belabor the obvious, and of course nobody likes the IRS, but experts calculate that for every dollar spent on the IRS, five to six dollars come into the U.S. Treasury every year. So good old Mike Johnson and the Freedom Caucus, insofar as they have a coherent argument, which is debatable, argue that in order to send desperately needed funds to Israel, we must cut income to the U.S. Treasury. Does anyone else think that this is about preventing the IRS from auditing the friends of Republican members of Congress rather than some um, fiscal responsibility? In any case, there is hope that some sort of agreement will be made somehow that will allow Israel to receive the support it desperately needs right now. All that is needed is for our shadow destroyer-in-chief, Mr. Trump, to stop sabotaging all attempts to help a nation he professes to love, Israel. Meanwhile, in Israel, tensions are flaring along Israel's northern border. A rocket fired from Lebanon killed a woman in the northern city of Tzfat in the Galil, the Galilee. Israel carried out extensive airstrikes inside southern Lebanon, responding to this deadly rocket attack from Hezbollah, the Lebanese terror group, which also left eight Israelis wounded. Israel's strike killed four terrorists. The barrage comes as both countries are under pressure to de-escalate tensions at the border, which has seen near-daily exchanges of fire since the outbreak of the Israel-Hamas war on October 7th with Hamas's atrocities. Hezbollah says it will stop firing rockets only when Israel stops the war, which began, of course, with Hamas attacking Israel. The conflict in Israel's north has led to calls from Israelis, including senior defense officials, to mount a major campaign against Hezbollah. 
And Hezbollah's last war with Israel, 2006 it was, more than 100 Israeli soldiers were killed in a ground invasion that did not end with a clear Israeli victory. In the 17 years since, almost 18 now, Hezbollah has rebuilt its capacity against the terms of the treaty that ended the war. Now a full-scale conflict with Hezbollah in Lebanon is widely understood to pose significant risk for Israelis all across the country, but especially in the north. Many northern Israeli border communities were evacuated just after October 7th because of Hezbollah rocket fire, including the town of Kiryat Shmona. Two people were wounded there in a rocket attack last week. I met some of those evacuees when I was in Haifa a couple of weeks ago. The mayor of Tzfat, Shuki Ohana, said he would not evacuate his city despite the increased risk and the killing. He called on the government to provide more security for the city. There's a shortage of defense in the city, Ohana said. The Israeli government needs to help with this issue. We have a dire shortage of defense. Tzfat, with a population of 42,000, is home to a major Israeli military base, a hospital, and is a historic center of Jewish mysticism. Many residents have remained in the past when hostilities flared. Without a doubt, the Torah protects us, said Rabbi Chaim Kaplan, who himself was injured by a rocket that fell back in 2006. He said his own father had been the only one in his yeshiva not to listen to the call to head to a miklat, the bomb shelter, when the city faced a barrage of rockets way back in 1978. He said, I'm in my shelter, the yeshiva, learning Torah. Doing my mission is my bomb shelter. I will not leave for anything. Kaplan filed a successful claim against Hezbollah in a U.S. court, which found that Iran and North Korea were liable for damages because of their support for the terror group. In other news, last week, the prime ministers of Canada, Australia, and New Zealand joined a chorus of voices calling on Israel not to follow through in its invasion of the southern Gaza city of Rafah. With the humanitarian situation in Gaza already dire, the impacts on Palestinian civilians from an expanded military operation would be devastating, these three leaders said. We urge the Israeli government not to go down this path. There is simply nowhere else for civilians to go. Canada's Justin Trudeau, Australia's Anthony Albanese, and New Zealand's Christopher Luxon said that a negotiated political solution is needed to achieve lasting peace and security and called for Hamas, which they condemn, to lay down its arms and release all hostages immediately, but they say an immediate humanitarian ceasefire is urgently needed. Well, I don't think Hamas is listening. The call adds to mounting pressure on Israel not to invade Rafah, Israelis called it Rafiach, a city near the Egyptian border where Gazans were told to go when Israel had to invade Gaza City and Khan Yunus. An estimated one and a half million Gazans are crammed into the city. Before the war, it had about 200,000 people. Last week, the U.S. State Department spokesman said the White House cannot support military operation in Rafah until such time as Israel has developed a humanitarian plan that can be executed, and that they have executed such a plan. Don't know what that means. Rafah City is Hamas's last remaining stronghold in Gaza. Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu agreed to American requests to evacuate civilians from the city, but who knows where they will be able to go? Months of war have left much of Gaza uninhabitable. Egypt, right next to Rafah, has refused to accept any Palestinian refugees. So much for Arab solidarity. 
There is growing international consensus. Israel must listen to its friends and must listen to the international community. The president's joint statement says the protection of civilians is paramount, a requirement under international humanitarian law. Palestinian civilians cannot be made to pay the price of defeating Hamas. Look, I've heard from people who met with hostages who had been kept by Hamas. Well, they weren't kept by Hamas. They were being held in the houses of Palestinians who had them locked in a room or a closet. And when they moved out of the house, they put people in the homes of other Palestinian, quote-unquote, civilians. In addition to the White House, the Arab League and the Vatican have both issued official oppositions to Israel's invasion of Rafah. Israel called the Vatican's comments deplorable, but later toned the characterization down to regrettable. Zionist Federation of Australia criticized Prime Minister Albanese's statement, saying that Australia must recognize the need for Israel to defeat Hamas. Canada and Australia are two of the countries with the largest Jewish populations outside of the U.S. and Israel. It is extremely disappointing and frankly unreasonable for the government to call for the removal of Hamas from power as the only pathway to end the war and then simultaneously call on Israel to refrain from entering Rafah to remove the last remaining Hamas military stronghold, said Zionist Federation of Australia President Jeremy Liebler. This places Israel in an impossible position. And that's the two Jewish news of Jews around the world. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation, known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of Southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful, grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, conservative, and orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. We welcome back the two Jewish, our guests this morning, Jay Nugaborn. He's the author of, boy, 24 books. Is that correct at this point? Uh, After Camus is the 23rd published. The 23rd published novel. He has won a variety of awards. A remarkable novelist, also written in nonfiction. He's won fellowships from the National Endowment of the Arts, uh, Massachusetts 
Council of the Arts, Guggenheim Foundation, taught at Columbia, Indiana, Stanford, SUNY in Germany, a, a professor, author, and the author of the new book After Camus, which is really quite a wonderful and diverse novel. So we started talking about After Camus at the beginning earlier in the show. He talked about the, the dancer who really is kind of the protagonist has this affair with Camus. Camus is killed. She goes on, and then we follow her life, but it, it takes us through so much of contemporary history, and yet Camus kind of overshadows it somehow. Tell us a little bit about how you developed the novel. Uh, you noted you're never quite sure how things start, but do you carefully plot things, or do they write themselves for you? I do not carefully plot my novels. I do know that certain events and certain moments, uh, let us say, will occur, although I'm not sure when. And then um, in order to find out how certain events will occur, will relate to each other, I have to write the book so that many things that I think will happen do happen, but some things happen that I'm not expecting to have happen. So uh, the book often, this novel, surprises me. What I did want to in this book was the difficulty in our time of a good long-term marriage. And I did set that against the background of several historical events, especially it, the book begins with Camus' death, uh, but it also, after that, the when the couple, who are the protagonists of the book, Tully and, and Saul, meet, it's had a protest of the Vietnam War, and the book then goes on, Saul is an AIDS doctor, goes through the AIDS pandemic in which he ministers to hundreds of people with AIDS. At the beginning, every patient he sees dies through the Iraq War, and eventually at the end to um, a village in France. They return to France, a village where Camus stayed when he had tuberculosis, and where they are confronted by a Le Pen demonstration and the rise of the rise of authoritarian regimes around the world. So it's setting their life history, their marriage, their careers as a choreographer, as as a, a doctor, uh, their lives with children against the background of historical events in a period of about uh, four decades. There's a, a sort of how shall I say this, kind of a winsome quality. Um, they're trying to revive their marriage when they go back to France, right? Yes, it's, it's where they had spent an idyllic time uh, at the beginning of their, uh, when they first knew each other. The beginning of their relationship, yeah. And before the AIDS pandemic uh, um, and other things occurred, yes. So they think if they can go back to this place, they can renew There's a certain kind of profound sadness, uh, I think, woven through the book. There's happy moments, but of course, does all great literature have to be a little bit sad? I I don't know. Great literature. I think we we are, my sense is that we are living in very difficult, even heartbreaking times. And uh, no matter our strengths, no matter how much we may individually and in our individual lives love each other, care for one another, care for things in the world the way 
she cares for dance and for her children the way he cares for his patients, the way at times they truly care for each other. We are, there is a sadness about the context in which we try to make good lives for ourselves. Uh, I think, I mean, look what's going on now. I mean, in, in Israel, uh, what's going on in the Ukraine, what's going on in the United States, the division, the, uh, we're living in very fraught uh, times and I, and that puts pressure on us in our personal lives, I believe. There are two significant elements I wanted to ask you about in the book. One is dance, um, which you seem to know an awful lot about. Tell us about that a little. I love dance. I I love the ballet. I love modern dance. I was fortunate one time to be friendly with someone who was on the board of the American Ballet Theater, so I got to be up close to a lot of dancers. My brother was a great dancer, so it's just something that I've always loved. I mean, I think for me as a writer, to be able to to express oneself non-verbally seems to a magical thing. Yeah. And in music and in dance, it would it seems to me a more pure way of expressing one's feelings, thoughts, oneself, one's very being, than words. Words for me are difficult. <laughs> they don't come easily, but it's what I do. So I, I, I love dance, and I put myself to school a little bit about dance in order to make her life and career and passion credible. The other... Um, aspects and by, by the way it's always fascinating to hear people you know write about dance you know it's like I don't know singing about food or something it's it's just such a remarkable challenge and yet you do it so beautifully obviously there's a lot of medicine in the book too he's a, um, a researcher dealing with the AIDS pandemic how deeply involved in that did you have to get how much of that where, where does that knowledge come from uh, the knowledge of the AIDS pandemic and of AIDS uh, came from my friends. Uh, as a young a young boy, young Jewish boy, uh, although my mother was a nurse, I do not recall ever wanting to become a doctor. Unusual for a Jewish boy of my generation. However, several of my lifelong friends from Brooklyn, we're still in touch with each other, are doctors, and one of them is one of the most prominent AIDS doctors in the history of, of AIDS. He is a man... Gerald Friedland, now at Yale, spent for over 20 years, spent some time every year in South Africa, and he actually was, with his team, was the discoverer of the fact that you could only get aid uh, through blood or semen. So he re- he made the discovery that reduced the stigma around AIDS at the beginning. You couldn't get it by going into a swimming pool or sitting on, you know, someone else's toilet seat. Sure. And he's a prominent AIDS researcher and clinician, and I spent a lot of time with him in his hospital when he dealt with AIDS patients. But that was before I knew I was going to write this book. I just (laughs) did it because I'm interested in my friends and what they do that's different from what I do. Do But he was enormously helpful. Do you think writers have to be inveterately curious? I hope so. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I am very curious. I'm very always interested in how things work, what makes other people tick. But um, I think most writers are, yes. But so are, so are um, great uh, scientists. I mean, uh, Einstein, for example, said that the greatest quality a scientist can have 
two greatest qualities are curiosity and imagination. And I think it's the same in uh, in almost any of anything that we do, uh, you know, writing, dance, research, science. I think curiosity and imagination are what fires everything. I, I think Judaism has always pushed both of those levers. I, I remember Isaac Rabi, uh, uh, actually another great physicist, a Jewish physicist, saying his mother asked him every day, not what did you learn in school, but did you ask a good question? Yes. I, uh, I actually, I knew, I, I knew Izzy oh. a little bit. I was very fortunate, and I have a little piece about him coming out in the spring. And um, when he found out, I met him when I was 25 years old, and he was a Nobel Prize winning uh, professor at Columbia. But it turned out he was born in the village that my grandparents and my aunts and uncles were born in, in Rimenov, in the, the shtetl of Rimenov, which is also the home of the, was the home of the Rimenov Rebbe. Rimenov, yeah, Hasidim. Uh, Menachem Mendel. So, yes, Robbie, curiosity, yes, uh, and imagination are, I think, look, I think they're essential not just to writers and scientists, but to, to an interesting life. I do uh, sometimes fear with social media that, that is uh, becoming a little bit too absent in the lives of young people. But um, I'm not overly concerned. <laughs> I, I think people will retain some curiosity, I just suspect. A final question. You've written so extensively on a variety of Jewish subjects. Do you have plans to write another on another Jewish subject coming up? Uh, yes, uh, I'm near the end of a new novel of writing a new novel, which has the working title of The Nassifer Family Circle. And it's set in, uh, begins in 1943 during World War II, and it has to do with a large extended Jewish family. And it ends in 2020. The novel spans a, a large uh, number of years and is about, um, I guess for me, among other things, the the diminishing presence of the extended Jewish family and the values and the riches that came with an extended Jewish family. I mean, I, I grew up with, I had 37 first cousins when I was growing up in Brooklyn. Wow. And they all lived in within walking distance. And that's our entire social life was family every weekend, all holidays. And I think there's a great loss, but that's thematic. Uh, but the novel is large, the uh, the people who inhabit this, the extended family of my novel, which is not my family, but an invented family, which has a life maybe parallel to that of my family. Jay, where can people go to find out more about you and more about After Camus, uh, the novel? You can go to my website, jaynugaborn.com. Uh, you can go to Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and to the publishing company, Madville, M-A-D-V-I-L-L-E, Publishing. Thank you for a great visit here on To Jewish. Can't wait to read what you write next. Well, thank you, Sam. A pleasure. When we come back on To Jewish, we'll hear about next week's guest. Get a final musical playout. 
Thanks for being here with us this morning on Two Jewish with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan. Join us next week. Our guest will be Tammy Rossman Benjamin, co-founder and director of the Amcha Initiative, talking about anti-Semitism on college campuses right now. And join us at Congregation Beit Simcha every Friday night for services in Oneg Shabbat at 6.30 p.m. By the way, next week is Rodeo Shabbat. We have a lot of fun with that one. Come Saturday morning too, 9 a.m. Torah study, 10 a.m. services, Torah reading in Kiddush, in person, and on our Facebook page. Our play out today comes from Eyal Golan. It's his Am Yisrael Chai, the people of Israel lives. My friends, may you have a Shavua Tov, a good week, a healthy week, and a week we pray profoundly of justice and peace. הלב נלחם בדאגות כולם יחזרו הביתה נחכה להם למטה הלוואי נדע בשורות טובות כי עם הנצח לעולם לא מפחד אפילו כשקשה לראות כולם ביחד אף אחד פה לא בודד שישרפו המלחמות עם ישראל חי, אם לא נשכח תמיד להיות מאוחדים. עם ישראל חי, בעליות, בירידות, גם בשעות הכי קשות. הקדוש ברוך הוא שומר עלינו, אז מי יכול עלינו? כי אין לנו עוד מדינה. לא תיפול כעת רוחנו מסביב ברזל של חרבות ויונה תפרוס כנפיים התקווה בת שנות אלפיים עוד נצא לשיר ברחובות כי עם הנצח לעולם לא מפחד אפילו כשקשה לראות כולם ביחד אף אחד פה לא בודד שישרפו המלחמות. עם ישראל חי, אם לא נשכח תמיד להיות מאוחדים. עם ישראל חי, בעליות, בירידות, גם בשעות הכי קשות. הקדוש ברוך הוא שומר עלינו, אז מי יכול עלינו?
sponsored by two Jewish radio programs, Tucson, Arizona.